Matthew 13. If you're reading the New Testament with us this year, we read Matthew 11 to 15. And I picked one of my favorite parables this morning for us to look at, Matthew chapter 13. I just want to start off talking about parables in general because I think sometimes we're a little bit confused about parables. So let me start off with a a little bit of original language information for you. The Greek word parabole simply means to put one thing beside another for the purpose of comparison or illustration. And to take that further, here's a definition from James Boyce. A parable, wait a minute, go back. Thank you. A parable is a story from real life or a real-life situation from which a moral or a spiritual truth is drawn. So a parable is Jesus taking two things, putting them side by side, and saying this thing is basically like this thing. Usually, what Jesus is wanting us to understand is an abstract thing that may be hard to wrap our minds around. And so Jesus takes a concrete thing, something familiar to us, something visual, something sort of hands-on, and he sets it side by side and he says, this abstract thing can be understood if you understand this concrete thing. This is like that. Jesus used parables a lot. He used them a lot when he was speaking to the crowds. Large crowds of people would come to listen to him, and many, many times he would use parables. In the New Testament, there's somewhere around 30 to 40 different parables. This is uh, not an exact number because some people don't agree on where you divide certain parables or how you count a different parable or know that's the same parable. So there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 40. This parable is traditionally called the parable of the sower. Parable of the sower. In your Bible, I'm reading out of the ESV, the heading here says the parable of the sower. Really, the emphasis of this parable, although it involves a sower, and it starts with a sower, and we're going to end with the sower, most of the parable actually deals with soil. And so a better title for this parable might be the parable of the sower and the soils. Now, when we think parables, you have had this drummed into your head. I've had this drummed into my head. We often think Jesus used parables to help people understand stuff probably because they lived a long time ago and they were kind of dumb And they didn't really have the ability to understand abstract things like we do. And so he used these parables to put all the cookies on the lowest shelf shelf and to help people sort of get it. There's a little bit of truth to that. There's no truth to the fact that ancient peoples were dumb. They were highly intelligent. They were not stupid people. They didn't need all of the cookies to be put on the lowest shelf. But Jesus did, in a sense, use parables to help people understand that's just Part of the truth. The whole truth is that Jesus taught in parables for two reasons. Number one, to reveal the truth. And number two, if you have ears to hear this, to conceal the truth. And I'm not making that up. I'm pulling both of those ideas straight out of Matthew chapter 13. So if your Bible's open, you can look at Matthew chapter 13, 
verse 34 and 35, it says, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. That quote in verse 35 is from the Old Testament. It's from Psalm 78. And as homework, you can go back and read Psalm 78. The point of Psalm 78 in this quote that Matthew pulls from Psalm 78 is really simple. We ought to take the truth of the gospel, the truth about God, the truth about salvation, we ought to pass it down to the next generation clearly so that they can take that truth and in turn pass it on to another generation. So the emphasis in Psalm 78 is we want to pass the truth down in a clear understandable, memorable way. And Matthew says, hey, that's why Jesus used parables. It's to fulfill Psalm 78, that we would pass these things down and that people would get it. However, there's more to the story. When Corey read this passage a moment ago, he skipped verse 10 to verse 17, which comes in between the parable and the explanation. And in those verses, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Jesus... Why do you always teach in parables? And in that passage, Jesus doesn't quote Psalm 78. Jesus actually quotes Isaiah 6. Remember Isaiah 6 when the prophet had a vision of the Lord in the temple? And he's overwhelmed with the Lord's glory and his majesty. And the Lord says, the, the triune God says, who will go for us? Who will we send? Who will be our messenger? And Isaiah says, sign me up. I'll go. And God says to Isaiah, great. No one's going to listen to you. They're going to hear you speak, but they're not going to receive what you have to say. And Jesus actually quotes that part of the Bible in Isaiah 6. And look what Jesus says in verse 13, Matthew 13, 13. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing, they don't see. Do they see it or do they not? Jesus says, yes. They see it, but they don't really see it. Hearing, they don't hear, nor do they understand. Jesus wasn't just trying to put the cookies on the lowest shelf. Jesus is, in a sense, revealing truth while also concealing truth. Now, what does that mean for us? It certainly does not mean that you and I need to be frightened or nervous or anxious thinking, what if we don't understand what Jesus is saying here? I'm reasonably confident that all of us in this room have the ability to understand what it is that Jesus is saying in this parable. I also think it's possible that some of us may not like what Jesus says in this parable. You might hear it and not hear it. You might see it and not actually see it. You may fill all the sermon note blanks in and walk away saying, yeah, I, I don't think so. There's a great danger when we come to this passage that we would see without seeing and hear without hearing. The big idea is very, very simple. 
Jesus wants you to consider the condition of your heart. He wants you to consider the condition of your heart. And I want to be honest with you. This considering is not an emotional feeling kind of thing. When I say consider the condition of your heart, I'm not asking you how do you feel. I'm not asking you what your emotions were when we sang the last couple of songs. I'm not asking you about some spiritually subjective thing like, well, I feel good today or my, my heart feels like this today. The question of examining the condition of your heart boils down to this. How do you receive and respond to God's word? Really doesn't matter how you feel about it, but how do you receive it and how do you respond to it? Jesus wants you to consider the condition of your heart. This is what he's saying. How do you hear the word of God and receive it and how do you respond to what God says in his word? Now, Jesus drives that big idea home with a parable about agriculture, farming. So this week I thought about my vast farming experience in life. My family at one point lived in Frankfort, Kentucky. So put a picture of Frankfort up on the screen. That's sort of looking across part of downtown. Downtown Frankfort sits in a river valley and there's city elevated on both sides. Our house was right over the hill towards the sun set in this photo. We lived in what I thought was completely out in the sticks, out in the middle of nowhere. For most of my people, they looked at us and said, no, you're a city guy, you live in the city. So we were kind of in that no man's land. And central Kentucky is a great farming country. There are a lot of tobacco farmers in central Kentucky and I had tobacco farmers in my church and so trying to be a man of the people I did not decide to grow a tobacco crop, but I said, I need to grow something. All of these people in my church, they grow things. So I got to have something to talk with them about. I'm not from here. I'm a brand new pastor. I got to have something in common. So I had one of the guys in my church bring his tractor over to our house, and he plowed up a spot in the backyard, and we had this nice garden spread, and we put seeds in the ground, and we put plants in the ground. And I'm not exaggerating. The thing went bananas. I mean, I think I could have grown bananas. It went absolutely nuts. I don't think I had to water but maybe once or twice The whole year, the temperature was perfect, the rain was perfect, the soil was good, you just threw the stuff out there, and then in came the harvest. And I got to the end of that first year, and I thought, I have missed my calling in life. Why am I preaching? I should go into farming, I'd make a million dollars. This is easy, so easy. Then we moved to Oklahoma, Kingfisher, now, Kingfisher is known as the buckle of the wheat belt. That's the sign when you drive into town. So people grow stuff there. They grow wheat. So it's not impossible to grow stuff there. There's a lot of guys that make a lot of money growing wheat in uh, western and central o- Oklahoma. So we moved to Oklahoma, and I said, okay, Kentucky was easy. How hard could it be here? Went out in the backyard, plowed up a spot. It wasn't quite as big. We had a smaller backyard put the seeds in the ground, put the plants in the ground, did all the same stuff, and it was okay. It wasn't like in Kentucky, but we grew some stuff, and I learned pretty quick. 
It gets hotter in western Oklahoma than it gets in central Kentucky. And it doesn't rain quite as much. And I don't know if you've ever been to western Oklahoma, but the wind kind of blows. And you put these baby plants out there and the wind just scorches them to death. And it's harder. There's more challenges. But we're still able to have a nice garden and a nice harvest. And then we move to Odessa. Look, you can grow stuff in Odessa. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of water. You got to find a way to get the sun off your plants. I mean, you got to do a million things to grow a garden in Odessa that you don't have to do in Kentucky. And what I'm telling you in this silly story is, you can take the same tomato plant and put it in the ground in central Kentucky or western Oklahoma or the oil field. You're going to get different results. The harvest is not going to be the same. That's basically the story that Jesus is telling. Farmer went out to sow. He threw the seed. Some of it went here, there, there, and there. And there was a different result in each place. Jesus told this story at this point in his life because people were responding to his message in different ways. They were hearing the exact same thing. Their response was not the same. There was a lot of people who actually at this point believed Jesus was the Messiah. He's the son of David. He's the one who came to save his people from their sins. People believed that. There was a lot of people who were curious about Jesus. They're trying to connect a lot of the dots and figure him out. There were people, when Jesus told this story, who literally thought he was insane, out of his mind. Some of his brothers thought that. He is completely off his rocker, lost his marbles, whatever metaphor you want to use. There were other people, highly educated, highly trained theologians who looked at Jesus, they heard the same thing the disciples heard, and their conclusion, their response to Jesus was, this man is possessed by a demon, and we should put him to death. There's a lot of different responses for one sermon. It didn't just happen when Jesus was walking the earth, it still happens today. I stand up and preach a sermon. Your Sunday school teacher stands up and delivers a lesson. You talk with a friend or a family member about the gospel or inviting them to church. You're met with lots of different responses to Jesus. Some people are interested. They want what you're selling. Some people are not. They're hesitant. They're skeptical. Some people are hostile. Maybe they think they've tried Jesus and they want nothing to do with him. There's lots of different ways to respond to Jesus. And can I just put one twist on that idea that people respond differently to Jesus? If you dial back the Gospel of Matthew to chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, verse 21 to 23, Jesus talks about a group of people who thought they were on Team Jesus. And then they stand in front of Jesus on the last day 
and they sort of pledge their allegiance, and Jesus says to them, hey, bad news, I don't know you, and I never knew you. You were not on the side of things that you thought you were on. And if you keep reading the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, verse 24 down to verse 27, Jesus doesn't use an agricultural metaphor. He uses a construction metaphor. And he says the problem is this. Some people build their spiritual house on sand. What are those people like? Those are the kinds of people Jesus says they hear his words, but they don't do them. It doesn't translate to life. There are other people who build their spiritual house on the rock. Those are the people, Jesus says, who hear his words and actually do something about it. Now that's the construction metaphor, building on the sand or the rock. We're in Matthew 13. We're not talking construction, we're talking farming. So here, Jesus is not asking you to say, have I built on the sand or on the foundation of the rock, Jesus is saying, what kind of soil is your heart? So that's the question that we want to wrestle with this morning. What is Jesus saying in the parable of the sower and the soils? Lucky for you and me, he explains all of this to his disciples, and we get to read it in Matthew 13. So the first thing he says is this. He talks about the path. The path represents people with hard hearts who do not respond to the truth of the gospel. They have a hard heart. They don't respond to the gospel. These are the kind of people who sit in a service like this, sit in a Sunday school class. You have a conversation with them. You talk to them about God being holy. You explain to them that they're a sinner. You tell them that God sent his son Jesus to live a life of perfect obedience and die on a cross for their sins and that Jesus calls them to repent of their sin and believe the good news, and they'll be saved. You talk to them about the gospel, and you might as well be talking to the wall. Eyes rolling back in their head, checking their watch, staring off into space, completely disinterested. It's a hard heart. It's the path in this parable. We all know people like that. What I want you to understand and just realize at this point in the parable is, left to ourselves apart from God's grace, that's all of us. Every last one of us belong in that category. That's where we operate on our own apart from God's grace. The Bible could not be more clear about this. Several verses, I'll put them on the screen. You can look them up later. Romans chapter one to chapter three is so crystal clear that left to ourselves, we ignore what God has said in the world, we ignore what God says to our conscience, we rebel against what God says in his law, we are all sinners and we want nothing to do with the good news of the gospel. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians chapter two. He says, left to yourselves, you are spiritually dead. You follow the prince of the power of this world, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, and you are by nature children of wrath. That's us, the path, hard hearts. You can find it in 2 Corinthians 4. 
where Paul talks about unbelievers having their eyes blinded to the truth of the gospel by the God of this world, by Satan himself. Left to ourselves, apart from God's grace, this is where we belong in the story. Hard hearts. We don't respond to the gospel. Secondly, Jesus talks about rocky ground. These are people who respond to the truth of the gospel, but then they fall away because of tribulation or persecution. Jesus actually says, if you read Matthew 13, they receive the word with great joy. They make a response, and it's a joyful response. But this soil is filled with rocks, and these rocks prevent this brand new baby plant from growing any sort of roots. So you understand how this works in Odessa. One day, the sun comes out and the wind blows, and a plant with no roots is dead just like that. Jesus says, you know, that happens to a lot of people. And I bet you can think about people that you know that that has happened to. They made a joyful response to Jesus But then there was some sort of, Jesus talks about tribulation. That's just a broad category for when Jesus says something like, in this world you will have trouble. Tribulation. Life's hard. I listened to a podcast just the other night, driving back in a dust storm from Stanton, to a man who said, I once followed Jesus, but then I experienced the suffering of this world, and now I'm done with Jesus. Jesus is talking about that very situation. Made a joyful response, but did not endure as a follower of Jesus Christ because of tribulation. Jesus mentions persecution. That's more of a subset. That's a specific type of tribulation. Persecution, there's people who say, hey, I'll follow Jesus, but then there's a cost. You understand that to follow Jesus in the years ahead in this country, there will be a social cost to be paid. You'll be labeled a bigot. And there will be some people who say, I'm not willing to accept that sort of label. And they'll turn back from following Jesus. Happens all the time. Thirdly, thorny soil. People who respond to the truth of the gospel, but they fall away because they're in love with this world and the things of this world. Again, there's signs of life. Something springs up, but then it gets choked out by the thorns and the weeds of this world. My mind this week went to Demas. We just came through the book of Colossians, and at the end of the book of Colossians, Paul talks about his friend Demas, he's a co-worker, a missionary. But at the very end of Paul's life, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, Demas has deserted me because he was in love with this world. He loved this world more than he loved the things of the gospel. John the apostle warns us about this danger, put up 1 John chapter 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world, and the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. John says, look, you might find yourself falling in love with this world. It's a world that's passing away. It's passing away. These are people, they show signs of spiritual life, but it gets choked out by the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, said, you cannot serve God and money. You will serve one and love the other. You will love the one and hate the other. You cannot do it. You cannot do it. It's people who are in love with the world. Can I give you one word of caution when it comes to falling in love with the world? It's usually, it's usually not love at first sight. Usually happens slowly. So slowly that you don't even realize it's happening or it's happened. It's a slow fade, which is why the book of Hebrews gives us this warning. Hebrews chapter two, verse one. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard to the scriptures, pay attention. Why? You might drift away. Just slowly drift away. Like a boat that's not tied to the dock. It's there. It's there. Then it's on the other side of the lake. That's what falling in love with the world is like. It usually isn't love at first sight. It usually doesn't happen in a moment. So you gotta pay careful attention, pay much closer attention Hebrew says. Lastly, good soil. Good soil represents people who respond to the truth of the gospel. They endure with faith and they produce fruit. There's a harvest. If you've ever watched people grow things from a distance, it looks really easy. Like you get online and you watch videos or you have a friend who grows a garden and you go over and you see it and you say, oh, this is nice, this, this is great. You're doing a wonderful job. And you leave sort of thinking, well, I guess anybody could do that. Doesn't look too difficult. I mean, these weed farmers in Oklahoma, they do a little plowing, they do a little sowing. What do you do till the harvest? You just hang out? That seems like a great job. At a distance, producing a harvest seems pretty easy. But if you're the one doing the work, you know there's nothing easy to it at all. It's a challenge. It's a struggle. It's a fight. It's blood, sweat, and tears. It takes effort. And that's true in the spiritual realm as well. Spiritual harvest in lives don't just happen easily. They take work. They take the right conditions. They take effort. They take faithfulness. But Jesus gives us hope, and he says, look, some of this seed of the gospel will fall on good soil, and it will spring up to life, and it will grow down deep roots, and it won't get choked out by weeds and thorns, and in the end, there will be a harvest. Jesus is not telling us that we're saved by the harvest. He's not saying that you're saved by your good works. He's saying the harvest at the end is proof 
that you're actually connected to the life-giving vine. Jesus is the vine, we're the branches. You abide in him, you bear much fruit. There's good soil and it produces a harvest. So that's the parable. And honestly, there's really not much to argue about in any of that because Jesus not only tells the parable, but then he gives the explanation to the disciples and we get to read both sides of it. And really, at this point, if you don't like what Jesus has to say, my only advice is close the Bible or rip this, this chapter out. Because it's just clear. It's just obvious. Jesus tells the parable and then he tells us what it means. The question for us is, what do we do with it? How do we respond to it? How do we make sure that we're building our life on a solid foundation, not on the sand? How do we make sure that we're the good soil, not one of these others? And so let's ask this question. How do we apply the parable of the sower and the soils? Number one, and this is the most important we're going to spend more time on this than the other three. Number one, we need to accept a biblical definition of salvation. Let me give you a quote from a New Testament scholar named Craig Blomberg. He's commenting on this passage. He says, the first three kinds of soils are all inadequate. None of them stands for people who were ever true believers, despite certain outward appearances. For farmers, only those plants that bear good fruit count for anything. True believers are thus only those who bear proper spiritual fruit. What counts is not profession of faith, but perseverance in faith. Talk to any farmer. When it comes time to bring in the harvest, they do not sit around and pat each other on the back about moral victories of all these plants that sprung up but then died. They don't care about those plants. It's a loss. What they care about is a harvest. Jesus in this story is giving us a fuller picture of what it means to be brought into his kingdom and experience salvation. And you and I may not like what Jesus says here. I'll give you a, a heads up. Culturally, it doesn't fit with where we're at as a society. This is the danger of hearing the word of God. How will you receive it and how will you respond to it, even if you don't like what it says? So I, I'm a visual learner. Let's just put these four types of soils up on the screen. You've got a path, You've got rocks, you've got thorns, and you've got something that's gonna produce a harvest, good soil. The question for us in thinking about salvation is, with those four, where do we draw the line of salvation to talk about who is truly saved and who is not? Culturally, let me show you where people in our society draw it today, right here on the left side. Because culturally, what people believe today, by and large, is that if you live, at some point you're going to die, and when you die, you go to a better place. There's really no consideration for what the Bible says about any of it. If you don't believe me, spend a week at the funeral home and listen to the messages that get shared and the things that families say. Basically, what they talk about is 
This person lived, then they died, and when you die, you go to a better place. You hear it in a thousand songs, in a thousand movies, in a thousand TV shows every day. Some Christian people have enough sense to realize, I don't think that's where you're supposed to draw the line. That doesn't seem right. That people who hear about Jesus and their heart is hard end up being saved. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying in this parable. And you're right, that's not what Jesus is saying in this parable. So what a lot of Christian church-going people in the United States do is they move that line here. And they say, on the left, you're out. You had a hard heart. You did not believe the truth about Jesus. You did not produce a harvest. However, the United States is filled with people. The Bible Belt is filled with people. Odessa, Texas is filled with people who believe in something that you could call decisionism. Just make a decision about Jesus, and if you make the right one, you're in. Ticket punched. Doesn't matter what follows, just make the right decision about Jesus. And if that's your standard for who's in and who's out, then you listen to Jesus' parable and you say, well, I guess the, the three on the right are in. Because Jesus says about the rocks and the thorns, they received the word. They received it with joy. Something sprung up and it looked like it was alive. Yes, I know there was a withering. Yes, I know there was a choking out. But these people made the right decision. They invited Jesus into their life. So they draw the line here. And they say, if you make the right decision, you get in. But look, if you have eyes to see and ears to hear, it's really not hard to figure out what Jesus is saying in this parable. Jesus is saying, this is where the line goes. This is where we draw the line of salvation. And Jesus understands there's going to be people who make a response, pray a prayer, whatever. But they're not going to grow roots. And the first time the winds of tribulation blow, they're going to shrivel up. The end of the Sermon on the Mount, I never knew you. Jesus knows there's going to be people who are going to spring up and look spiritually alive. But in the end, they're going to be like Demas and they're going to love this world more than the kingdom of God, more than the king himself. End of the Sermon on the Mount, I never knew you. These people built their house on the sand. They built a house. They made a response it's just not the response that Jesus was looking for. Listen, we want people to make a response. We want them to respond to the gospel. When we talk about God being holy and we talk about our sin and we talk about Jesus and his sacrificial death on the cross and we talk about the urgency of repenting and believing, if you have never responded to that message, please, please respond to that message today. Just know that as Jesus describes genuine salvation, he talks about people who not only respond but who grow deep roots 
and they endure in faith. And in the end, they produce a harvest. They're not choked out by the things of this world. Blomberg was exactly right. What counts in the end is not a profession of faith, but it's perseverance in faith. I think we need the wisdom of George Whitfield. George Whitfield was a great Bible preacher in the first great awakening. It's a painting that I've cropped off the sides of, of George Whitfield preaching. He would preach in the open air. It's said that he could preach in the open air to crowds of 20,000 people. His voice was so strong, I'm envious this morning, and people could hear him outside. Tens of thousands of people listening to him. And he was a straight shooter. He was a gospel preacher. And he would set it all before folks. Tens of thousands of people listening everywhere he went. People would come to Whitfield after a sermon. And they would say, hey, George, how many got saved? How, how many raised their hand or prayed a prayer? How many people got saved today? This is what Whitfield would say to that question. We'll see in a few years. Lots of decisions. Lots of them with joy. Lots of responses. Lots of people showing signs of spiritual life. How many got genuinely saved? We'll see in a few years. Listen to me. George Whitfield was not waiting for these people in a few years to work their way into God's good graces. He's not talking about legalism, works-based salvation. He's just saying, if these people got genuinely saved, in a few years it'll be evident. And if they didn't, that will be evident too. Too often we operate on an un biblical understanding of salvation. It has horrific consequences for future generations. If we get it wrong, they get it wrong. So when Jesus talks about what it means to be born into his kingdom and what it means to be a disciple, we have this decision in front of us. How will we respond to what Jesus is saying? Will we walk off thinking that as Americans, we're smarter than Jesus and we know better? Will we listen? Will we receive his word? Secondly, move through these quickly. Be aware when you hear the word of God. And right now I'm talking to you, believer. Be aware. Be alert. Be careful. Be vigilant, be mindful, be aware when you hear the word of God because when you hear the word of God, when the truth of God's word is sown into your life, you have an enemy, the devil, who wants to snatch it away before it takes root. This is true for the non-Christian and the Christian. I'm telling you, when you walk in this room and you listen to a sermon, when you go to a Sunday school class and your teacher opens the Bible and talks about the Bible, when you wake up early because your pastor said you're supposed to read through the New Testament this year and you read Matthew 11 to 15, you are exposing yourself to the Word of God. 
you are entering this parable and you have an enemy who wants to snatch away the word of God from your life. We talk about spiritual warfare as if it's some crazy stuff where people projectile vomit and heads spin around and we cast demons out of people. You know what spiritual warfare really looks like? It looks like you walking in this room and me saying, do you open your Bible? And we read it together. And now the question is, what are you going to do with it? Spiritual warfare looks like you getting up early in the morning and cracking open your Bible and reading five chapters from the New Testament a week and then saying to yourself, now what do I do with this? Am I going to hear it and build on the sand or am I going to hear it and build on the rock? Am I going to be the path, the rocks, the thorns, or good soil? Thirdly, be focused on the task of making disciples. This is true for a church and it's true for a family. 100, 1,000, 1 million percent, we want people to make a decision about Jesus. If you've never done that, today's the day. Make a decision. Repent of your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. As a church, we're not in the business of decisions. We're in the business of disciples. Now that starts with a decision, but that's not the end, that's the beginning. As a church and as families, we have to be focused on what Jesus is talking about here, which clearly is discipleship, not just people making a decision. Fourthly, we need the, sour, the, the sower to plow the soil of our heart. We need the sower to plow the soil of our heart. I don't have a verse to point to when I say this. I'm just thinking about farming. I'm thinking about the guys in my church in Kentucky who grow tobacco crops. They plow those fields every year. It's not just a one-time thing. Like I plowed it back in 1975 and we're still growing tobacco. Weed farmers in Oklahoma, it's the same thing. Every time you're gonna put wheat in the ground, you're gonna get out there and you're gonna plow that field up. Why? Because it gets hard. The rain comes down, the wind blows, it gets hot, it gets cold. That's what soil does, it compacts, it gets hard. And if you wanna grow something, you've gotta break it up from time to time. I'm looking at people who are in this room on a Sunday morning, I'm assuming that most of you at some point have made a decision about Jesus. Most of you have made a decision to trust in Jesus. And what I'm saying to you is you still face the danger of your heart getting hard. You know it. You open your Bible in the morning to read those five chapters and you read a paragraph and you say, I don't know what I just read. Read it again. I don't know what that's about. I gotta read it again. Read it again. I was thinking about the day. Mine's somewhere else. You come in this room. You listen to me talk. I, I might as well be talking about quantum mechanics. You don't care. Doesn't seem relevant. It's not just lost people that wrestle with that. It's saved people. And maybe this morning as you think about what Jesus is saying and you think about how you're going to apply it to your life, maybe you just honestly say, you know what? I got a lot of rocks 
right underneath the surface that I need to get rid of. And I need to grow roots. I need to deepen my faith. Yes, I've made a decision, but I gotta have a solid foundation. I need to start growing some roots and I gotta get rid of some of these rocks. Or maybe you say, you know what? I got weeds and thorns in my life that I gotta get rid of. I don't know if you've ever tried to grow a garden anywhere, but weeds grow really fast. And you gotta go out there all the time and yank them out, pull them out, or they'll just choke out what you're trying to grow. And spiritually, that may be where you're at. You may say, you know what, I just gotta yank some stuff out of my life right now. It may be good stuff, it may be bad stuff. It's just stuff that's crowding out the most important stuff. And maybe you just honestly say, you know what? I have made a decision about Jesus and my heart is just hard today. It's just hard. And what I'm saying to you is that this parable starts with a sower. And you could talk to him today and you could ask him and be honest and say, God, my heart's hard. I know it and you know it. I can fool the preacher, I can fool the person sitting next to me, I can fool the person who's looking over my shoulder to see what the last blank on the outline was, I can fool my Sunday school class, I can fool my spouse, but God, I know it and you know it. I'm hard as a rock. I don't care about this stuff. Maybe you just need to be honest with him. Maybe you need to say, God, I just need you to come into my life again. Just like a farmer tilling the ground every year and I just need you to break up my heart so it's not so dadgum hard. Don't see without seeing. Don't hear without hearing. Hearing.